Uh, and so last week we started this summer series on the Ten Commandments. And uh, I was thinking about the Ten Commandments as what Mike was going through them. And I was reminded uh, several years ago, St. John's would occasionally bring in Alan Root. That name is probably familiar to a lot of you. Um, he would come in, um, like every other year we'd have him come, and he would lead the children in worship during vacation Bible school, and then he would do concerts at night. And he had a very unique way of um, teaching the children songs and hand motions and things to remember the scriptures, to the point that my daughters, who would remember Alan Root, I tested them this week. (laughs) And they still remembered the hand motions to the song about the Ten Commandments. Um, and actually when I asked them, I said, you know, do you, do you still remember the hand motions to the Ten Commandments? And their first question was, why? <laughs> You're not going to make us do that, Dad, are you? I said, no, I won't make you do that. But I said, could you remind me what they were? And so uh, it was love God first, love God only, love God's name and day, and honor your parents. Don't kill, don't break your vows, don't steal, and don't lie. Don't covet what somebody else has. And that was a good way of remembering, basically in a nutshell, the Ten Commandments. Now, somewhere in the middle of the song, um, Alan Root would do this rap section. And um, I've been challenged to do that for you this morning. So that, uh, you, and, and this is probably the most important part of the song, and it's the reason why I, um, it's, it's kind of the, the, the backbone to what I want to talk to you about this morning, about how we connect the, the Ten Commandments from the Old Testament to the New Testament and to Jesus Christ. And so uh, I'm going to need your help with this a little bit. I need a little bit of a backbeat, so can you clap with me? Here we go, ready? Clap with me. All right. Good, we got it going. Here we go. Stay with me. Ten commands. The ten commands. I could never do the stuff the law demands. But on the cross, the Son of Man gave me grace and glory and a place to stand. The law won't budge. The law won't bend. You can't do nothing about one through ten. They teach me about Jesus, my Savior and friend, the ten commandments. All right. That's okay. Come on. I did that one time years ago, and I wore a hat. I put the hat on backwards. I tried to really play the part, you know, and um, realized as I was greeting some of you after the service that I kept the hat on through the entire message, and that was all some people remembered. But what I love about Alan Root's handling of the song and the Ten Commandments uh, is the ability to link the Old Testament teaching uh, and the Old Testament covenant to the new covenant of the New Testament. Jesus himself spoke of the Ten Commandments and how they connect he and I and you in our relationship with God the Father and the author of these principles and the creator of this covenant. And so I want to begin today in the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Uh, And I believe these are going to be up on the screen for us, so... Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, 
will, be, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus goes on in the following verses challenging believers to take the law to the next level to a certain degree. He, he kind of um, adds some language to the teachings of the law. And I want to encourage you to take the time to read those verses uh, almost as a supplement to our study of the Ten Commandments as it stands among the law and the prophets. I find this portion of Matthew to be a reminder of why we take the time to refocus on the Ten Commandments and perhaps take a fresh look at how they apply today. It's funny how much I know personally I don't think about the Ten Commandments. And, and why is that? Well, because they kind of become ingrained in our hearts and our minds and almost are elementary to life itself. If you're morally a good person, uh, you probably adhere to the Ten Commandments without even thinking about them. And perhaps without even having a relationship with your Heavenly Father. And yet, these commandments are foundational to being in relationship with God. And they both align our character with His, and they come to us as an extension of His grace. Now, last week, Mike spoke of the first commandment, which establishes the uh, monotheism of our faith, one God. He wants to be in relationship with us. Therefore, we can have no other gods taking his place. There could be many things, people, establishments, or philosophies that can challenge your beliefs. But if it is a relationship with God you seek, there can be no other. The second commandment that we're going to begin looking at today is a principle that somewhat overlaps the first. And as we look at the, the second and the third commandments today, I want to explore three questions with each of these. Uh, one specific to the commandment, and then one, why is this significant? And then, how do we apply it? And so it's in Exodus 20 that we find the Ten Commandments. And I want to read again the beginning of this chapter into the verses that we're going to talk about today. So Exodus 20, uh, beginning with verse 1. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven, above, or on earth, beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers for the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Now, the first commandment implies that God is the only God and, any, and not anyone or anything uh, that would represent a lowercase g God should come between you and your heavenly Father. The second commandment helps us to know how to apply the first. Not only is God the one true God, but we are to worship him and nothing that represents him. And so first, let's take a look 
specifically at this commandment, what is an idol? Uh, by definition, an idol is an image or representation of God used as an object of worship. It should also be noted that it can be a person or thing, greatly admired, something that we love or someone that we revere. An idol can represent anyone or anything that takes over our lives. It steals our attention from the things that really matter. This commandment not only helps us to keep our priority on him, but it helps us to keep our priorities in general in balance. We need to be conscious of the things that steal our time. We need to find balance in our priorities so our hearts are aligned with the heart of God and the character of God. Idols have proven themselves over the years to be dangerous. Now, one of the first things that comes to my mind when I think of an idol is a statue. And statues have taken center stage recently across the country. The statues themselves are not the problem. It's what, it, it's what they represent, and it's the importance that we place on them that becomes the, the, the very line that draws um, a, a wedge between us in this country. I want to I give you an example of um, how statues sometimes can uh, take over in our lives. Uh, in the center of Harvard University, there is a statue of John Harvard. Now, uh, every spring, under normal circumstances, we take the band and choir on a trip from West Effort High School, and one of the places that we go is Boston. And whenever we go to Boston, we include in our trip a tour of the Harvard campus. The kids love that. Uh, it's a neat place to see, uh, particularly at that time of the year. You really get to see, even though lots of students are moving out, there's a lot going on, and it's a great place to go. And so as part of that tour, we see this statue of John Harvard. John Harvard, which, fun fact, was an assistant pastor. How about that? Um, so, you know, in the future, you might be seeing a statue of Bill Yerkes somewhere. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't count on it. But in our tour of Harvard University, one of the things that we learned about this statue of John Harvard is that come finals time, students will rub the feet of the statue. Look at the tips of the shoes of that statue. They almost look as pristine as they did the day that the statue was put there because students rub the tips of his shoes for good luck. It tells you something about the importance that people put on things or something that represents something. Somehow John Harvard is going to bring them good luck on their final exams. So the idols mentioned here in Exodus, in the Ten Commandments, include any kind uh, or an image of anything in the heavens or in the earth or in the sea. Now later in Deuteronomy, Moses talks about this a little further. Um, he says, you saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb. Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai, out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman, or like any animal on earth or any bird that flies in the air, or like any creature that moves along the ground, or any fish in the waters below. 
And when you look up to the sky and see the sun, the moon and the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping things the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. But as for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron-smelting furnace, out of Egypt, to be the people of his inheritance, as you now are. And so the definition of idols can be very extensive in our culture. Idolatry can take many forms um, as we take our eyes off of Christ and set our focus, our attention, and even our worship on other things. And so the second question that we're looking at in regards to this commandment is, why is this significant? Well, the Ten Commandments are also referred to uh, as the Hebrew Decalogue. And the second commandment is the first of three that identify a specific motive. So we read the commandment followed by a for statement. In this case, the motive is, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. Now, The word jealous can have negative connotations the way we use it and the way we think about it. God's jealousy here is not selfish. When we hear the word jealous, we think of a person's jealousy of another or their jealousy of something else. But God's jealousy here is a jealousy for us. It's the best way to show his extravagance, the extravagance of his love for you and I. This is where his grace is demonstrated in the commandments. He loves us in such a way that he desires to be in relationship with us and he desires for there to be nothing that comes between you and I and him. Probably a better word uh, to help us understand this would be zealous and we hear that sometimes too. God is in pursuit of our attention. He's in pursuit of our love and our devotion and our worship. And no physical thing can or should take his place. Our motive for removing idols from our lives should be to keep our focus and our attention and our worship on Jesus Christ. And so the third question is how do we apply this? How is it um, applicable or applicable? However you say that word. Um, He says in the last part of it, I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. Boy, that's tough to hear. That's Old Testament tough stuff to hear. But make sure you read this and hear these words correctly. There's two scenarios that are mentioned here. One is for generations of those who reject me. And one is for generations of those who love me. We all have a story. And we all have a a background where we come from, what our upbringing was. Some of us are here today because of our parents. Some of us are here today in spite of our parents. And we can say for sure 
um, that our relationship with the Lord has something to do with something that happened along the lines in our background. Some of you pray for the salvation of your parents. And some of you sit here this morning and you pray for the salvation of your children and your grandchildren. Well, you have to hear this this morning in the midst of these words in the Old Testament. We have all been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb of Jesus Christ. And all of us are given the same opportunity to be in relationship with our Heavenly Father. How we choose to live according to Scripture will certainly impact others. By loving the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind can only bring blessing upon blessing to the ones that you love, whether they know it and accept it or not. But rejecting Him and making the choice to live in separation for Him runs the risk of causing others to do the same. And we have to remember also that God was giving these principles to the Israelites he brought out of slavery and he was creating this covenant with them as, as kind of a, a first generation with the intent that it would be their covenant for many generations to come. God wanted this for all people from this moment to the moment when he provided his son as a living sacrifice to make a way for all to be in relationship with him. We are all still individually accountable for our sin. God's not going to condemn us for the sins of our relatives, but he wants us to be accountable to those that we love and for for those who watch how we live and how we demonstrate God's love and impact in our lives. We have the potential of making a difference for the generations to come based on what we do with what God has given us and how we choose to live our lives. God wants us to worship only him and have no other gods before him. And he doesn't want to be replaced by something or even someone who may steal the focus of our worship. And then we read in the third commandment in verse 7, God wants us to revere his name with holiness and honor. Exodus 27 You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Now, there's a better translation of that uh, in the American Standard, which is how we kind of memorize the Ten Commandments when we're younger. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. And so, obvious answers come to mind when we think about taking the Lord's name in vain. And you've probably, if you're um, a parent or a grandparent, at some point in your life, you may have said those very words. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. But specifically, how might there be other ways? I'm pretty sure that God wasn't only thinking of the, those simple ways that we take his name in vain when that became one of the commandments and, and part of the covenant. And so how might we misuse or take the Lord's name in vain? I go back to... How Jesus taught us to pray when he said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Which, by the way, for a long time I thought that that word was pronounced, Hallowed be thy name. Because sometimes we say that in the rhythm of the uh, the Lord's Prayer or the way it's sung sometimes. It's a musical thing, but there's a triplet in there. There's three words, there's three or three syllables, there's three notes. And I've sung it, hallowed be. It's hallowed. 
His name is hallowed. And by definition, when we talk about a name that is hallowed, it's made holy. It's revered. So I just made some bullet points as I thought about the name of the Lord. He is the creator of heaven and earth. He is the one who provides for our needs. His kingdom is what we seek in our faith journey. His will is what we seek in our daily lives. He provides us with grace upon grace. His name is more powerful than any other. When God's name is used in connection with anything that is not holy, anything that does not give him glory, it is senseless, meaningless, and the scripture tells us it's sinful. Many years ago, I worked with someone who I had great respect for. She was smart. She was talented. She was one of those people that I took my work to and my ideas to for affirmation and for, for new ideas, bounce off of her because I knew she always had, a, had, had good advice. And one day when it, we discovered that our relationship um, ha, was, was to that point where we were more comfortable opening up with one another, I discovered that her language changed. And suddenly in the midst of our conversations, she was using a lot of profanity. And she was using the Lord's name consistently in vain, the way we know it to be used. And I realized at that moment that for all she was to me and for all that she meant to me, that like that, she lost integrity to me. All that I knew that she knew and for all of her, her education and for all of her talents and all of her abilities, the integrity in just a moment was gone because in my opinion, when she began to use those words, she reduced all that she was and all that she knew to profanity and using the Lord's name in vain. Now, don't get me wrong. It is not our job to judge people because I know for a fact that she did not have a relationship with the Lord. And I know for a fact that she didn't believe in God. And so I wasn't judging her because I still had great respect for her, for all that she was and for all that she had accomplished. But if you have the knowledge of the saving grace of our God, the power of his majesty in the world around us and his unrelenting pursuit of a relationship with us, why would you speak in a way that strips all of that away? If God is doing a work in your life, then his name should be given glory for what he's doing. If someone shares something uh, uh, to you uh, about the way he's working in their life, then that re represents a blessing in their life. That represents a work that's being done in his name. So give him the praise. Give him the glory. Find positive ways of using his name to, to demonstrate to the world the way he's at work around them. Now, having said all of that, as I'm writing this and I'm thinking about it this week, I'm also thinking that sometimes we can go the other way and we can use it so much that we don't stop to really think about what we're saying to just throw around a, a, a praise God. And I'm, I've been guilty of that. I've been guilty when I don't know how else to respond to just say praise God. And, and I've caught myself. And I've, I've caught myself in times when, you know, when are, am I really giving praise to God at this moment or I'm just not sure what to say? What are we praising God for? And I want to go so far as to say, and don't hear this wrong, give me a second, that... This generation doesn't always understand our, 
God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. There's nothing wrong with that, and I think that it should continue to be said. But I think sometimes it's the way we say it. It sounds robotic. It sounds rehearsed. It sounds like there's no spontaneity. And most of the time, it sometimes gives the feeling that we don't really believe it. And so when we talk about what God has done for us, and when we talk about what gives God the glory, it's not just about who we are and what we do, but it is very much about what we say and how we say it. And so why is this significant? Well, he says, for the Lord, this is another one of those motive statements, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. And again, in another translation, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. One sentence, I think, summarizes that up. We are accountable for what comes out of our mouth. I want to paraphrase for you, um, and these are not going to be on the screen behind me, just some key phrases, but I want to paraphrase for you for the first 12 verses of James 3. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. The tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that who defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life, and is set on fire by hell. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. Now, there's a story in Matthew where Jesus was confronted by the Pharisees just after he drove out demons from a possessed man. And they were trying to say that he was Satan and that he was driving out the demons uh, as a directive from Satan himself. The power of God was being demonstrated in their midst and they couldn't recognize it. And he refers to them as a, quote, brood of vipers, end quote, and says that their talk is evil because the root of what they say is evil. And then in verse 35, he says this, A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have, everyone will have to account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. And so how is this applicable? How do we apply this? Well, we did a whole series on this a while back. Our words are powerful. They can be used to build up and they can be used to tear down. And they can be used to either point people to him or turn people away. And ultimately, they can draw us closer to him or become the very thing that separates us from him.
God doesn't want an image or something or someone to be a picture of who he is to us. He wants us to love him and pursue him in faith believing. Jesus, Jesus gave us a picture of who God is. Not because through Jesus we know exactly uh, what he looks like or somehow he gives us a, a picture of the physical God. But Jesus represents in human form the very nature of God and the very character of God. It was his sacrifice that gives us access to the throne room of heaven. The Ten Commandments point us to Jesus and he exemplifies the will of the Father for us to imitate. Keeping in mind that in just a moment we're going to sag into a time of um, communion, a very meaningful time in the life of us as believers. I want to close with this quote that I read in a blog this week that deals with this very portion of Scripture. The giving of the law to the nation of Israel was one of the most important events in the history of man's redemption and an important step in the chronicles of the covenant nation of Israel through whom God's anointed son was born. But the main function of the law is to point us to Christ because he, he is not only the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, but he is the one who has fulfilled the law on behalf of all who would believe on his name. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we can go back. Be reminded of something that perhaps we were taught in her childhood or were, were taught in the very early years or the early stages of our relationship with you. Lord, we thank you that in every word of Scripture we can be reminded of your Son, Jesus, who came as a living sacrifice for each and every one of us, that through his blood we can have a relationship with you. Lord, help us to grow in that relationship. Help us to let not anything stand in the way let there be no obstacles, let there be nothing or, or no person who steals our attention from you. Help us, Lord, to keep our focus on you, our eyes on you, even in the darkest of days, in the most challenging of times, in those moments in our life when, when we feel distant from you. Help us, Lord, to be reminded that you've offered us grace, grace through your word, grace through your covenants, and grace through your Son, Jesus Christ, that we may one day be united with you in the kingdom of heaven. We give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.